The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 9 this morning. This portion of God's word involves what is known as a servant song that points forward to the coming of the Messiah as the servant of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 16 this morning. The word of our God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please keep your place here. This will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. You were created and redeemed For a life of profound significance. Jesus intends that your life will have a dramatic and positive impact on your neighbors, both in this present age, but also an impact that will last for the glory of God for all eternity. Christ has established his kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, he comes announcing the favorable year of the Lord. The Messiah has come. He's reorganizing 
the people of God around his own person. He has established his kingdom. He is building his kingdom. And he is setting it as a city on the hill. But the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine forth from this city to call the lost out of darkness and to make clear that all the kingdoms of this world will one day be the kingdom of our God. Beloved, you are that city. So the king of kings is commanding you, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Now this morning we're going to look at this passage under six headings. Don't panic. Um, This is not a long sermon. It just is going to be more helpful for us to look at this passage under six narrowly defined terms than to try to bunch them together under three or fewer broader categories. So this morning, here are the six main points or questions that we're going to be looking at. First, there is the good news. You are salt, and you are light. Then second, we're going to ask, what is salt? And third, we're going to ask, what is light? That is, how do they function as metaphors in Scripture? Fourth, we will ask, why are we tempted to disguise the salt and the light? Fifth, we will consider the waste of corrupted salt and hidden light. And sixth, we will consider the glory of living as Christ's disciples. As I said, that might sound like a lot, but each of these points or questions is straightforward and fairly easy to grasp. We begin with the good news that you are salt and that you are light. Look at verse 13 with me. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We see that Jesus is saying the same thing about light in verse 14. Our Lord does not talk about all the things we need to do in order to produce light. Rather, he simply declares the good news that you are the light of the world. This is actually a vital truth to grasp. Uh, Regrettably, uh, these very words are frequently used by preachers and other Bible teachers as a launching pad to say something like this. If you really want to be salt in this world, Uh, you need to get involved with our Thursday evening program of Evangelism Explosion. Or or come to the Christian Political Action Committee that meets on Saturday. Or surely, if you want to be salt, you're going to come to the seminar that we're holding next week. But I want you to realize Jesus is saying, you don't have to do anything to be salt. You don't have to do anything to be light. I have called you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into my family. And by my grace, you are salt And you are light. Now those other things might be worth doing. But you don't have to climb a ladder in order to become what Jesus says you already are. Uh, Let me say this quite clearly. 
Heaven and earth will one day pass away, but the words of our God will never pass away. And the word of your God is telling you that if you are in Christ, you already are both salt and light. Don't allow anyone to rob you of that good news. The challenge in this morning's passage is not how do we become salt and light. The challenge is resisting those forces that want to dull the impact of us being salt and light in this world. Uh, You know, you are light, but if you put the light under a bushel, the light doesn't shine, it doesn't help anyone, and it doesn't glorify God. That's the challenge that Jesus is dealing with in these verses. I think it's significant that Jesus speaks of our sphere of influence as the earth and as the world. Remember, he's primarily ministering in Israel to Jews, but he does not limit the impact of his disciples to the physical descendants of Jacob. That is, from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he has a bigger vision for what's going on. Now, this theme's going to get developed all the way through his life, so that when we come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to hear the Great Commission that we are to go into all the world and disciple all the nations. I want you to see that's already taking place early on. Jesus does not say you are the light to Israel. You are the light to your family. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus, after all, claims the entire earth is his own. He will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Christ's plan for the people of God in history is tremendously significant. But what exactly does it mean for Christians to be salt and light? While the latter image, that of light, is pretty transparent, easy for us to grasp, turns out that it's pretty hard to pin down exactly what Jesus means when he says you are the salt of the earth. Uh, one commentator, I didn't check this, but one commentator suggests there have been something like 23 different uh, interpretations of what that means. I think that should make it clear to us. It's not quite as clear as light is to figure out. And that shouldn't cause us a lot of problems. These are, verses are serving sort of as an introduction to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So as we deal with those specific passages, it's going to flesh out what this really means for us. When we think of salt, we naturally think of it as something that adds flavor or which serves as a preservative. And it actually might be both of those things. Jesus might have both of those ideas in view. I would add that one interesting aspect of salt is it only takes a little bit of salt to significantly impact the flavor of a dish it actually takes relatively little salt, despite the frozen food that you buy in the supermarket that may have a lot of it. It only takes a little bit of salt to serve as a preservative. That can be an encouragement for us as disciples, realizing that we don't need to take over everything. We don't need to be in a majority. Simply by seeking to follow Jesus Christ and put his teaching into practice, we can have a meaningful impact on those around us to the glory of God our Father. Nevertheless, it seems obvious, at least to me, that Jesus is intending something weightier 
than the fact that we're going to make the world more interesting and more tasty. I, I don't think that's what Jesus has in view. Furthermore, if we push the physical aspects of salt too hard, we have to deal with the problem that too much salt will ruin a meal every bit as much as too little salt will. And quite clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't saying, let your light shine before the world, but not not too much. Tone it back a bit. And he's certainly not saying we don't want to have too many Christians running around, right? People that are trying to put my word into practice. So we have to be careful about taking these images and pressing them too hard. In fact, wouldn't it be wiser for us to approach our Lord's words in light of their Jewish background rather than on the basis of modern science or modern usage. And it turns out that there is a use for salt that was very common in Jewish teaching right up to and actually past the time of Jesus Christ. In the Talmud, we have um, recordings of rabbinic teaching. These were important rabbis. Uh, that use this image of salt to refer to the word of God. And actually what they would do is they would use salt to refer to the word of God and pepper and spices to uh, to refer to the Mishnah, that is the authoritative teaching, oral teaching of the rabbis. Uh, I'll give you a verse from Sophorim 15.18. Sophorim 15.18, this is from the Talmud, says this, The world cannot endure without salt, pepper, and spices. And in this passage from the Talmud, salt represents the scriptures of the Old Testament, while the pepper and spices refer to the authoritative tradition contained in the Mishnah. Now please notice how strong that language is. The world cannot endure without the salt of the scriptures, and without the authoritative teaching, that is the pepper and spices, of the Jewish rabbis. Now, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus taking an axe to that approach to oral law, the tradition of the Jews, that actually obscures the pure word of God. But if if this idea of salt representing the word of God is in the background, it really is very striking. Jesus is saying, you, you know how essential the word of God is for my kingdom and for the world, you are that essential as my disciples. In fact, you are to be embodiments of the word of God as you take my teaching and by my grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you put God's word into practice in your life. I want you to pause on that for a moment and think about that. Because it's saying that you following Jesus is really, really important, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the world. Now, it is sometimes said you might be the only Bible that another person ever reads. I want to add, that would be a tragedy because none of us, none of us fully represents the purity of God's word, no matter how sanctified you happen to be right now. So that would be a tragedy, but it's also a reality. If none of us actually were putting God's word into practice, you could read the Sermon on the Mountain. It's just going to seem like a utopian pipe dream. A bunch of nice sentiments, but we know no one could ever actually do that. But by God's grace, as we seek to apply God's word, simply by following Jesus, simply by taking his teaching and putting it into practice in our lives, what we're demonstrating is, yes, 
the kingdom of God has crashed into history. Yes, we are following a very different sort of king than the kings of this world, and therefore we live differently to the glory of God. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, but its power and its influence are visible only in the sphere in which the world least expects to see them, in the poor in spirit, among those who mourn over sin, and in the persecuted community of the followers of Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus is getting at when he says, you are the light of the world? Well, what is light? Um, Unlike salt, light is a pretty transparent image in how it works. Light tends to represent purity and knowledge. In fact, we talk about coming to understand something in terms of enlightenment, right? It's just a very natural sort of usage. In the Old Testament, light is closely connected with the word of God. Uh, For example, Psalm 119 tells us that thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. And a little bit later in the psalm, we read this. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. See, God's word is light, and God's word brings light, because God himself is light. I mean, isn't that what John tells us in 1 John? In 1 John... We're told this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And of course, when the word became flesh, he said, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we saw that truth in our Old Covenant reading from Isaiah this morning. Uh, The promise of sending the Messiah into the world included the fact that he would be a light for the nations. Listen again to just a verse and a half here. The Lord says in Isaiah 42 to his chosen servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, all those truths are extraordinary. But if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've grown used to them. They're extraordinary promises, extraordinary truths when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But as Christians, we we know that. But then Jesus turns to us and he says something that rocks us back on our heels. You are the light of the world. Now, not, of course, in the sense that we are original lights like Jesus is, right? He's the light because it's his very nature to be light. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. But, beloved, Jesus really is saying, as my people, you are being conformed into my likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit and by my word in your life. And therefore, I am sending you out so that you are the light of this world.
That's extraordinary. I mean, how is that even possible? As I say, naturally, Jesus does not mean that you are original lights in your own being. That's not it. And yet, Christ's disciples serve as light in the darkness of this present age in two very important ways. First, simply by following Jesus and seeking to put his teaching into practice, we serve as mirrors which reflect God's light into the world. In Christ, the image of God is being restored in you. And therefore, in that sense, to the degree that you're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, to the very image of God, you are light in this present darkness. Second, simply by following Jesus and seeking to put his teaching into practice, we display God's transforming grace. Our very presence makes clear that there's a different way to live than the way that the world is living. That we don't need to allow the world to press us into its mold. That it is possible to live for the sake of a different kingdom and to the glory of a very different sort of king. Beloved, we do not need to attack the world. We do not need to protest in the world for these things to be true. We don't need a political action committee. Simply by following Jesus and seeking to put his teaching into practice, you will serve as a reflection of God's light, which both exposes the world's darkness and which points people forward to the life that could be theirs in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, given how beautiful such a picture is, Why does Jesus have to warn us about obscuring the salt and obscuring the light? I mean, wouldn't we all just rush to do this? We all want to have lives that are significant, and Jesus is saying, I created you and I redeemed you to be significant. I created you and redeemed you to have this sort of incredible impact in the world to the glory of God that will matter forever. Well, I don't think we actually need that much of an explanation of why Jesus has to give us this warning. Why we might be tempted to put our light under a bushel. Jesus tells us in verse 15, people do not light a lamp and then put it under a bushel. They put it on a lampstand so that it will give its light to the entire house. That's the good purpose. But the reason why we're tempted to do something else is simple. The world hates the light. That's it. Jesus says in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, that's the problem. All of us want to be accepted, honored, and loved in the world. And I want to say that's not bad, actually. That's not a bad thing in itself. It only becomes a, conflict, a problem when those, that desire comes into conflict with us living the way that God wants us to live. Right? You're not supposed to go out into the world and try to make enemies as though uh, if, if I get people to dislike me, that just shows how much I'm honoring God. That's crazy. But the tension we have is, is we know, we all know that if we do everything Christ is calling us to do, 
there will be aspects of that that rub against our current culture. And those are precisely the aspects we're going to want to tone down, cover over, put a bushel over that, so that we can have both the love of the world and the praise of Almighty God. As Peter tells us in his first letter, those who choose to live for sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry will find it strange when you do not, do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they will malign you. Right? They're not simply going to say different strokes for different folks. And see, part of the reason for that is, is the very reality that you're simply living differently puts to a lie the claim that everybody's doing it, right? I mean, what can you do? That's how we are as human beings. Everybody's doing it. And if you live differently for the kingdom of God, your very presence in doing that makes clear that's not true. There is another way to live for another kingdom to serve a very different sort of king. That shouldn't surprise us. We, after all, follow a crucified Messiah who is the light of the world. And when God sent his light into this world, we mocked him, we ridiculed him, and we nailed him to a tree. Now, the good news is, it's very unlikely that any of us is going to suffer that much for being images, in a lesser sense, of the invisible God. But it shouldn't surprise us that we're going to have to deal with a certain amount of scorn. And we're going to have to choose to pay that price. So what do we do? There are two main ways in which Christians can seek to avoid the hostility of the world. First, we can become so worldly, or at least present ourselves as being very comfortable with all the worldliness around us, right? so that it takes off all the rough edges, and the world kind of goes, well, you're, you're a different sort of Christian. There is actually another way to do this as well. That is to try to maintain your purity but totally separate yourself from the world so, so that you can be holy in private and um, you're not going to have any conflict with the world because you're not actually in it. The truth is many of us are tempted to do a little bit of both of these. That is, while we're out working primarily with non-Christians in the world, we're going to tone it down a lot. And then in private or in the presence of other Christians, we're going to be more openly disciples of Jesus Christ. But that's obviously a problem for us. As I say, it's easy to grasp why we would be tempted to live like this. But every time we seek peace with the world by covering over our clear commitment to living according to every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God, we are living a little bit of a tragedy. If we try to disguise our saltiness or hide our light under a bushel, We don't simply take a different approach to life from what other Christians happen to be taking. Look at the passage and notice how bluntly Jesus puts it. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now being trampled underfoot is not simply a sign of uselessness. 
these people, because they are in fact salt, they are in fact going to be saved on the last day. It's not like they lose their salvation. But this trampling underfoot is a sign of judgment over the squandered opportunities they had in life to impact other people for the glory of God. Right? That's what's going on here. And Jesus is saying it's not just a little different thing, a different stroke for different folks. If you become tasteless, saltless as it were, as salt, you are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under other people's feet. Because Jesus loves you, he's giving you this warning in very blunt terms. Beloved, don't waste your life. That's what he's saying. I've created and redeemed you to be significant. To live a life that matters both for this present age and for the age to come. That is Christ's clear message to each and every one of us. Yet as Sinclair Ferguson points out, how slow we are to learn this lesson. At times we fall into the trap of being blackmailed by the world that says, unless I find your life attractive on my own terms, I will not respond to the message of the gospel. But if we yield at this point, we become prisoners to perpetual blackmail. Now, let me say that Sinclair Ferguson knows what he's talking about here. We are, in fact, tempted to want to present who we are on the world's terms. But Ferguson adds this. I have sometimes heard Christians witness to people in these terms. You mustn't think that being a Christian takes away your fun. I can enjoy doing the same things you do. Being a Christian isn't a series of don'ts. Well, much of that might be true. I would just add, you know, I mean, you guys are a lot of fun. And I've been to Christian weddings, so they're the most fun weddings I've ever been to. Christians can, in fact, have a great deal of fun. But Ferguson's point is this. Why should the church be so concerned to tell the world that it is not really very different from the world? Because that's what happens when we get blackmailed in this way. We're saying, you can have all those things you want right now. We're not really that different. Just add a little bit of Jesus to your life. And Ferguson reminds us that if the church becomes like the world, it becomes powerless and pointless. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we should be running around shouting, look at me. Uh, I'm salt. (laughs) I'm light. Look at me. In fact, we're going to turn the page to the beginning of chapter 6. We're going to see Jesus precisely warns us not to do our good works for the sake of winning the approbation of those around us. Right? That's not the point. The point is we're simply to live as Christ's disciples all the time. Simply seeking to take Christ's teaching and to put it by his grace into practice in our own lives. Jesus is calling us simply to let people see our light. That we really are living for a different kingdom and that we really are serving a very different sort of king. And we cannot do this by compromising on those aspects of Christianity which most offend the current culture. Nor can we do this by seeking to maintain our piety by completely separating ourselves 
from the world in which we live. Way back in the 1970s, Becky Pippert put it like this. Christians need to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. That is your calling because you are not light to the church. You are light in this world. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is that not a glorious calling? Jesus is warning us about the serious consequences of being faithless in this calling, but the major note being struck is the blessing of living as Christ's disciples all to the glory of God. There's a warning in this passage, but what's really being held out is something extraordinary. God's intention for our lives. So I want to encourage you to slow down and absorb what Jesus is saying. Your Lord and Savior who spoke the universe into existence is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of this world. What is the city on a hill? That's who Jesus is saying you are. You are the city on a hill that cannot be hid. What is the city on the hill? Well, let's start with what the city isn't. That city is not the United States of America. I mean, politicians can't uh, resist using this image to talk about America in those terms, but that is not what Jesus is saying. Chuck Colson liked to remind us the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. So what is the city on the hill? Well, every first century Jew would have known like that. It's Jerusalem. God's special place is the city built on a hill. But Jesus is not referring to physical Jerusalem. He's referring to that Jerusalem that comes down from above, the heavenly city. And Jesus is saying to you, you are that city. You are the city on the hill that cannot be hid You are the city who is supposed to glorify God by shining his light out into the darkness. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I'm too small and insignificant for that. I mean, I know you. I talk with you. You're thinking, yeah, that might be something that God does with the church as a whole. Uh, But I'm just over in the corner. This isn't me. You have to remember that God delights to use what the world considers to be insignificant. Almighty God's plan from the very beginning has been to choose what appears to be foolish in the eyes of the world to shame those who are wise in their own eyes. He has chosen what appears to be weak in the eyes of the world to shame those who imagine that they are strong. The Lord acts like this so that it might be made abundantly clear that the power and the honor and the glory all belong to him and not to the vessels. So let me give James Montgomery Boyce the last word this morning. Dr. Boyce writes, God uses the small things and the small people. God uses you and me that he might do his work in the world. 
As a matter of fact, the smaller you become, the more effective his work will be. Do you know what we are to be? We are to be picture frames within which Jesus Christ is to be seen. God is not interested in a gold frame. He is not interested in a beautiful, ornate, carved ivory frame. God is interested in an empty frame. So that when people look at the frame, all they see is his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are the light of the world. And in you, by God's grace, people can begin to see Jesus. Amen.